Amen. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, verses 41b. And you're wondering, where is that? Right at the end of chapter 15. So if you think that I made that up, I didn't. It really is in the Bible. We're going to be basically in chapter 16 today. What a, what a beautiful song, The Goodness of God. I hope that kind of music encourages you. I hope not only on a Sunday morning from 1045 until noon, but that you're listening to it, singing it throughout the week, going, spending time in God's Word. You know, we all know we're in a very unique time as a church family, as a nation, in the world. But one of the things I've started to realize is I have a lot more time to think and to ponder and to wonder, what is God doing? Not just in the midst of this coronavirus thing, but what is God doing over and above that, because he's certainly in control of this. It may not feel like it at times. We may wonder, where's God in all of this? Oh, he's, he's sitting on his throne. He's a sovereign ruler. He knows what's going on. And it just makes me wonder if part of the way God is using this is to do two things. To slow us down in a nation in particular that just always has to have something to do, including us as believers at times. Maybe God is just saying, slow down and listen. Listen to my voice. Listen to my urging. I have a vision I want to give you, personally and corporately. But sometimes we're just too busy, aren't we? But I think he's also speaking to our nation, saying, your life is more fragile than you realize. No amount of money, no amount of protection in a sense, is going to keep you from dying someday. And I think people have to be thinking about that. And we have the ultimate solution. I know that there are companies, government organizations worldwide looking for something to solve this COVID-19. But that's only putting your finger in the dike. We all face death. We have the answer, the eternal answer that takes care of all of that. And that answer is called Jesus Christ. And that was the mission that Paul was on. Not just to the Jewish people, although he had a Jewish background. But now we see him starting on his second missionary journey, heading at the end of that journey all the way into Europe. We see the Holy Spirit intervening, saying, no, you're not going to go here just yet. Paul didn't understand. We don't understand why things don't always work the way we want to. But God in his sovereignty and his timing and preparation of people and events and resources knows exactly what he's doing. But we've got to listen. We've got to listen. We've got to have eyes to see, eyes of the heart that are softened towards what God wants. That's what we want to think about this morning. As We think about an expanded vision. The expanded vision of the church was going way outside of Jerusalem by this time. We're probably into the growth of the church close to 15 years now, well over 20,000 people. And the number of Jewish converts is beginning to get outpaced by those who are non-Jewish. Part of the revelation, part of the vision that Paul had as he wrote in Ephesians that Randy read was a mystery. A mystery is not something that we are going to figure out on our own. It's something that has to be revealed by God. And God revealed to the Apostle Paul that the mystery 
from ages past was that one day there would be one body, the church, Jew and Gentile together. Now, we probably don't appreciate that as much as those with a Jewish background back then and maybe even today. The thought of God's people up to that point now expanded to a worldwide vision of God. I want to remind you this morning as we, as we go along, though, to text my cell phone, uh, 661-330-7571. We'd like to hear your prayer requests. I've gotten a few throughout the week, and I'll share those later. But if you have something on your heart or mind you'd like prayer for, I'm going to work hard to leave about the last 10 minutes or so of our service to, to pray with those, to lead you in prayer in those things, and then we'll close with a song. Let's pray together now to ask God to speak to our hearts. Lord, we bow in your presence, thanking you for this time of worship you have blessed us with. Help us to remember that worship is a lifestyle. It's putting Jesus number one every day. We see our work, we see our play, we see everything we do as an act of worship, of recognizing who you are. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, may this unique time in our lives personally, in our families, in our homes, all across our world, help us to remember that. And may we never forget, Lord. May we also value the relationships that you have blessed us with. We, we admit, we confess that we just kind of take for granted that we can come to church on a Sunday and sit with our friends, our family, and worship. And yet when that's taken away, Lord, our hearts are yearning for those days again when we can gather, we can shake hands, we can hug, we can enjoy that corporate time of worship. We thank you for the technology you've provided and for the hard work our tech team has put in to make this happen. But Lord, we know that those relationships are so critical to our overall health and well-being. And we pray that in your timing, this will be taken care of so that we, along with other churches, will gather. But Lord, may we also bring people with us, people that need to know Jesus. Would you burden our hearts for that even now in these quiet moments? Thank you for your word. Thank you for the insight that it gives us, inspired so many years ago by you, Holy Spirit. Would you now open the eyes of our hearts to see it, to understand it, and to obey it? Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'd like to suggest four things, four observations, big rocks as I call them at times, that I think we can learn from this passage in chapter 16. 1541b technically, but basically chapter 16. Let's read together, first of all, 1541b through 16.5. And when we think about an expanded vision, what we see in the life of Paul and his companions is an expanded vision for a corporate body or for a bigger group beyond yourself, I guess I'd say, has to include raising up additional leadership, raising up additional leadership. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Now, he'd been there in chapter 14, and there's some question about when did Timothy actually accept Jesus? When did he trust Christ as Savior? Was it in chapter 14? Was it later? Was it under Paul's ministry? Was it by his grandmother and mother that Paul talks about in one of his letters to Timothy? We're not sure, but the point is, as a young teenager, which he was probably a teenager at this point, he was living with his mother, his grandmother, and his father. His mother was Jewish, had a Jewish background, and a believer in Christ, but whose father was a Greek. And the implication is he was not a believer in Christ. In fact, some wonder if he was still living at this time. The believers at Lystra and Iconium, and this is about a 60-mile radius of these towns that all kind of interacted among themselves, spoke well of him. He had a good reputation. 
Paul wanted to take him along on a journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you read the book of Galatians, you'd see that Paul resisted having Titus circumcised. Titus also was part of this team. Titus was a Gentile. He was non-Jewish. Luke, who was also part of this team, and we'll see him in verse 10, was also a Gentile. So he, there's no implication that he had to be circumcised. But because of Timothy's background of being Jewish, half Jewish, half Gentile, Paul knew to be sensitive to the Jewish people they'd have contact with as they continued on their journey. And those Jewish people would become less and less the farther they went from Jerusalem. That it was important for, for Timothy to be circumcised. It was cultural sensitivity, if you want to call it that. It was a willingness to say, you know what? I love you enough to accommodate your strong belief in this area. I'm okay with that. Romans chapter 14 talks about that. Chapter 15 last week, we talked about the accommodations that the Gentiles were asked to make in sensitivity to their Jewish brothers and sisters. And we talked about our lives are intricately connected with other people. And as Americans, we struggle with that, don't we? We like to think of ourselves as just self-sufficient. It's just me. Well, it's not, especially in the body of Christ. And so as we interact, we, like Paul, need to be thinking, how is my life affecting the person that sits next to me in the pew on Sunday or the person that I interact with in various ways within the body of Christ? Those are good questions to ask. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles from chapter 15 and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. If you still have your map that I handed out, uh, you can, uh, and I think they've got one on the screen for you there, but mine looks like this. You'll see where Paul, le they left Antioch. They went to this 60-mile uh, radius communities of Iconium, Lystra, Derby, And it was there that they met Timothy. It was there that they continued on their journey, on this second missionary journey. Paul saw in Timothy a young man with leadership qualities. He was well-spoken of by the people in those communities. And he wanted to raise him up in his faith. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, when he writes to now Pastor Timothy, he says this, To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Now that caused some people to wonder, did Paul lead him personally to Christ? Or is it just more of a term of endearment to a young man that he had grown very close to? But as we think about expanding vision in a corporate setting, in a church like Shafter MB or any church, we have to always be thinking about raising up additional leadership. A church can only grow as far as it has leadership to give guidance to and oversight to that growth. And so if you're a leader in our church family, here's a good question for you. Who's your Timothy? Who do you have in mind that you're praying for that you're thinking this, this person could be a leader in this particular area? If you don't have someone, I encourage you to write a name down. Begin to pray for them. Think about how you might be, begin to encourage them in their leadership role. Because if they're called to leadership, they probably sense that too. And having someone come alongside like a Paul in their life is critical for them to feel that confidence and that guidance. There's a principle that I learned many years ago. 
I can't say I always practice it. I'll confess to you sometimes in my own ministry over the years. I, you know, you get busy, you do things, and you forget some of these things. But 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, some refer to as the principle of the third generation. The principle of the third generation. Paul says this, You then, my son, writing to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now you think about this. Paul to Timothy to others to others. That third generation. They say, they who have developed this idea, say that the a mark of a healthy church is when disciples make disciples who make disciples. Sounds like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Go and make disciples, the command. Make disciples who catch a vision for ministry, who make disciples who give it to the next person and the next person. It's hard work, but it's worth it for the overall health of a church family just like ours. So an expanded vision has to include raising up additional leadership. It also has to include being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, verses 6 through 10. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now on your map, you're going to see a big Asia right in the middle. Can't miss it, okay? That, that is modern-day Turkey today. It's not China or Japan or, you know, those countries we think of as Asia. That's what they called it back then. North of there, you'll see some kind of squiggly-looking lines. You'll see Bithynia and Pontus. And in between kind of that name Asia and Bithynia, Pontus with the squiggly lines, okay, that would be Mycia. Now, it's not on your map, but it's, it's kind of a region, almost a transition region between those two areas. So keep that in mind as we, re, as we continue to read here. When they came to the border of Mycia, they tried to enter Bithynia, which was north, but the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, which was farther in Greece, which they were heading that way, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we, Luke is included there, he probably was in Troas, so he joined the group of three, now they're four, got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Troas was on the coast. Troas was about 10 miles south of modern-day Troy. Sound familiar? I think that's where Brad Pitt lives, right? Didn't he do a movie about that? Anyway, I guess he lives wherever he wants to live. But the point being, Troas, we not, that may not ring a bell quite as much, but Troy, yeah, we've all heard of Troy and all that goes with that. So that's where they ended up heading. Now you may wonder, well, why, if Paul had a burden for Bithynia, why didn't God let him go there? Because God is sovereign. This is God's kingdom, not Paul's kingdom. It's not Shaphir and B's kingdom. And God in his wisdom and in his timing and provision will at times open doors and close doors. Why? Because he's preparing hearts and minds to receive the message of truth. It's not our persuasion that causes people to accept Jesus. We are to be persuasive and we are to be convicted and we are to be as, as sincere as possible. But unless the Holy Spirit does what only the Holy Spirit can do, no one will accept Christ. 
We read about that in John chapter 16. Unless the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, their need for Jesus. And the invitation to trust Christ, who is the ultimate solution to life's issues. People aren't going to accept Christ. And, and Paul, in many ways, was continuing to learn that himself. I always think of Henry Blackaby when I think of these kinds of things. Henry Blackaby was, uh, or is, a, uh, a Bible scholar, a teacher, a pastor. He wrote a book called Experiencing God. Many of you have read that. That's a whole series in itself, so I'm not going to take the time to go through it all. But he, his, his principle of how God expands his kingdom is that God is always at work. Jesus talked about that himself in the Gospel of John. My Father is always working. And I'm going to join him in that work. And the way we join him in that work is through relationship. We, we get as close as we can to the Lord and we listen to his voice. He invites us then to be involved in his work, whatever that might be. Sometimes it's very obvious. It's right in front of us. Hey, we need Awana workers and we've got a great Awana club. So, okay, I think I'll go help with Awana because I love kids and I love the Lord. And that's where I'll start. That's where I started in ministry many years ago. Never thinking I would ever become a pastor. That was the farthest thing from my mind. My home church in Modesto needed a water workers. I said, I've got the time, and the rest is history, so to speak. So God invites us to you to, to be involved with the work. He begins to speak to our heart on the burdens that, and how he has made us, certain skills, abilities, gifts, and, and he begins to direct us towards what he wants us to do. But at some point, we're going to have a crisis of belief because God is going to ask us to make some changes, perhaps. Changes of time, priorities. Who knows what he might ask? Why? Because he wants us to trust him. He wants us to be reminded it's not by might or power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord, that eternal things are accomplished. And we as people sometimes think God really needs us badly. No, he wants to use us and he can use us. But he can accomplish a lot without us too. But he's chosen to use us. And so sometimes he brings these crises of belief time to remind us it's all about him. It's not about us. And then when we adjust to that and we obey, we experience God. And maybe we hear the mountains tremble. I don't know. But we experience what God has for us because he directs us to where he wants us to go. It always reminds me of Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not on your own understanding because we don't know everything about everything. Google doesn't know about everything about everything. Or Alexa or any other, you know, artificial intelligence. The ultimate intelligence, the word, the truth, Jesus knows everything. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. God invites us to be involved with his work. But we've got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit personally and corporately. Well, we also need to be, have an openness to new th ministries. An expanded vision includes an openness to new ministries. Starting in verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Simithrace. Simithrace was a small island harbor. They typically landed on the north side of it. Uh, the uh, sailors of that day knew that it was a long shot to Greece. And so they typically would harbor there. Simithrace was known for something very interesting. Uh, in it, archaeologists many years ago found a winged Nike, a winged 
Nike on on the island. It's in now in the Louvre in in Paris. But I'm sure you've heard of Nike, that small shoe company that started many years ago. Nike means or it's, Nike was the Greek goddess of victory, the Greek goddess of victory. So that was Symmethrace. That's where they landed on their way to Macedonia. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Symmethrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis, which was the port city. From there, we traveled to Philippi, about another 10 miles west, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed there for several days. Alexander the Great's father was named Philip. He named that city Philip after him, or Philippi. It was established in 168 B.C. It became a Roman colony in 42 B.C. And if you read the book of Philippians, one of the unique things about Philippi, they call it a mini-Rome. Many of the architectural qualities looked very much like Rome. And the Roman citizens there took their citizenship very, very seriously because all the rights and privileges of Rome were part of who they were. And so if you look at the end of Philippians chapter 3, what does it talk about? Our citizenship in heaven. See, he was appealing to what they already knew. They had a certain sense of, uh, I don't want to say self-importance, but they understood how important citizenship was as Roman citizens. And he says, you want citizen? You want to be a citizen? You want citizenship? Become part of the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. That's citizenship. That lasts forever. And so you read that on your own. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, Saturday, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, why did they do that? It took at least 10 Jewish men to establish a synagogue. In the entire town of Philippi, they could not find 10 men. There were some Jewish people scattered here and there, but not enough to make a synagogue. Now, if you look back at chapter 14, verse 1 in the book of Acts, what does it say? We went to the local synagogue as was our pattern. In other words, Paul and his companions, the typical approach to ministry for them was, let's go to the local synagogue. Let's share with the Jewish people there and some of the Gentile people who the Bible often calls God-fearers. They weren't completely Jewish. They hadn't gone through all the rites and privileges, but they believed in the one true God. They were monotheistic, one God. Philippi didn't have that. So what do you do? Ah, we can't do ministry. There's no synagogue. Well, let's go home. No. They went to the river expecting to find a place of prayer. Now, why the river? Because the Romans did not like Jewish people. There was, there was a, a racial, uh, religious uh, prejudice against them. So if you want to pray to your God, because Romans were what? They were polytheistic, many gods, Greek culture, many gods, God of victory, so on and so forth, Nike, and, you know, name the, name the shoe company. They were there, so to speak. They had to go out to the river. So that's where Paul went. We sat down and began to speak to the women who were gathered there. Apparently only women were there. We don't know where the men were. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. Thyatira was northeast of there. A dealer in purple cloth. In other words, she was a businesswoman. She was a worshiper of God. Not Jewish, but 
kind of on the outside of Jewish worship because she was attracted to that. Maybe she'd had her fill of polytheism and, and the pointless sacrifices to the God of victory or whatever. And she started to realize there's nothing here that makes sense. There's got to be something more. So she was attracted to God through the Jewish people. And she's kind of an outsider looking in in a way. She was a worship of, of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, so members of her house were assuming children, uh, perhaps a spouse, and the spouse isn't mentioned there, but people who are old enough to make a decision for Jesus were baptized. She invited them to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded him, persuaded us. The early church often started in homes because there were no church buildings. Even though they went to the synagogues, they, you know, from there they would often go into homes until it got big enough, then he'd find more of a public place to, to meet. This was a completely different approach to ministry for Paul and his team. But God used it to establish the church at Philippi, one of the healthiest churches we see in the New Testament. Now, when we think about that and we think about the history of our own church in our 102nd year, my mind went back to some of the things that have been done over the years. The churches that were established, like South Chapter, which has become Capernissimo Cristiano, or Iglesia Capernissimo Cristiano, Christian Fellowship, our, our sister church, Park Lane Chapel, Wasco Bible Church, North Kern Christian School, all of these things. And I realize there have been changes over the years, but those ministries had an impact, and they continue to have an impact in people's lives. Fifth quarters. Can you imagine when that was suggested? A what? A party after football games and pizza. Why would we want to do that? We've never done that before. How about sports camps? you ever think you'd have a wrestling sports camp at Shafter MB or basketball sports camp or even a gym? And yet, for years now, God has led us to do that. Do you ever think you could sit in your living room and I'm not going to ask you to text me what you're wearing as you're watching us this morning. Maybe you ought to take a selfie and show us your pajamas. I don't know, whatever you're wearing. You know, send them to the guys in the back and we'll put them on the screen next week. Can you imagine? You ever thought about that? You see, new ministries, yeah, they're scary. They mean changes, but man, they're exciting. When we are listening to the Holy Spirit, when we see new leadership being raised up saying, I'd like to try this, I'd like to do this, let's bless them. Yes, help them think it through. Yes, you know, refine that. But my question to all of us is what's the next new thing that God wants to do at Shafter MB? What's the next one? There's got to be a next one. As God stirs our hearts, as He burdens us for the communities in which we live, He's always leading us into new things. What's that going to be? What's the future going to look like? Paul and Timothy, Silas, Luke, they caught a vision of that. And they went down to the river. They didn't give up because there wasn't a synagogue. They said, hey, we think God is at work down at the river. Let's go down there. And the church at Philippi was born. Well, as we've talked about many times in the book of Acts, and what started out as a pretty nice honeymoon in chapter 2 and 3 and so forth, quickly turned into times of opposition. And any time we have an expanded vision, any time we have a sense of God's leadership, you can expect opposition. Just expect it, because it's going to happen. Verses 16 
through 40. Once when they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. In other words, she was possessed by a demonic power. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now for Gentile Greek people, when they heard the idea of being saved, they were thinking of, of impersonal powers that were affecting their lives. So in a sense, this, this woman possessed by a demon, the demon was speaking through the woman, was, was, I don't know if I'd say proclaiming the gospel. She was becoming quite an irritant. What's interesting is the word ventriloquism is part of that root word in Greek. Someone speaking through another. And you know what a ventriloquist is? You know, they're speaking, little guy's mouth is moving, whatever. That's the idea behind it. So as a demonic power is speaking through this woman, it's becoming quite the irritant to Paul. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Economic hardship for the people that owned her because she was her she was the key to their income. When her owners realized that their way of hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar. Now catch that phrase, Jews. They didn't like the Jews. Why didn't they take the other two? Because Timothy was half and half. Luke was a Gentile. They just wanted the Jewish guys because they didn't like them to begin with. By advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Rome had a law that you could practice your own religion, but you dare not try to recruit somebody else. That's why they didn't like the Jewish people, because they claimed exclusive rights on who God was. They maybe weren't as evangelistic as the church, but they didn't like him anyway. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, probably close to 39 lashes, according to what we understand about flogging, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell. In other words, his maximum prison, so to speak, for that day, and fastened their feet to the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Can you imagine? They've been beaten. They're they're, they're in stocks, which they couldn't move very much. They say they could have gotten terrible cramps, but they couldn't get rid of them. And yet the Holy Spirit empowered them and enabled them to sing. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Now, earthquakes weren't that uncommon in this area, but the next thing didn't typically happen. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Something's happening more than an earthquake. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he was responsible for those prisoners. And that was the standard of the day. You lose the prisoners, you lose your life. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for the lights and rushed in and fell trembling for Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, he may have been thinking, saved and I don't want to die, or saved from these powers out here. Or maybe he was listening to the hymns of Paul and Silas and realizing there's got to be more to life than what all of this other stuff is saying. They replied, 
Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. In other words, members of your household. Invite them to believe too. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his household, those who believed, were baptized. Now you think, wow, they had a baptistry in their house? No. In fact, they weren't going to go out at night, not with a bunch of prisoners. So most likely, they probably either sprinkled them or poured them. You see, the issue of baptism is not the mode. We practice full immersion because we saw Jesus baptized in the Jordan River, and we believe that's the, the best way to represent what baptism is, an outward sign of an inward faith. But the issue is not the mode as much of the purpose of baptism is to tell other people, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, and I am publicly wanting to proclaim that through believer's baptism, whether it's in a tank like we have, or sprinkling or pouring. In this case, it was probably sprinkling or pouring because of the situation they were in. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his household. When it was daylight, the magistrate sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. In other words, we're done with you guys, you Jewish guys. Run along. But Paul said to the officers, they have beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. Think about where they were. Philippi. Was citizenship important? Oh, critically important to them. And threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The magistrates at this point were shaking in their, well, they didn't have boots back then, I'm thinking, but whatever they were wearing, they were shaking in them because they could lose their position for doing what they did to a Roman citizen without any kind of a trial. And Paul and Silas knew that. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they had heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. You see, we have to expect opposition whenever we are following God's vision for what he wants us to do personally and corporately. But in Paul and Silas's case, they were wise enough to know that as Roman citizens, we're going we're gonna to grab the rights that are ours. That was that part of that earthly citizenship we have too. And in the long run, it also protected the church. Because Paul and Silas could have pressed charges against the magistrates, and they basically said, we're going to let this go, but you don't mess with those people. And that church ended up flourishing and becoming one of the best churches in the New Testament. Anytime we're trying to advance the gospel, we should expect opposition, sometimes outside of the church, sometimes even in the church. William Carey, very well-known missionary of his day back in the 18th century, born in 1761 and died in 18. 18- 34, so spanned a couple centuries, had a heart for God. He, was, he had a Baptist background. He was ordained as a Baptist minister and had a heart for people overseas, wanted to take the gospel overseas. And here's what happened when he first shared that with the denominational leaders, I'll say. 
At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions, William Carey. He was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert to heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Can you imagine? In a church meeting, we want to support a missionary in Thailand or Portugal or the various places, and someone stands up and says, Hey, God wants to save those people. He'll do it without chapter MB. Aren't you glad that somebody argued against that years ago? And part of the DNA of our church is overseas missions. I'm so thankful for that and have been so thankful to be able to represent you on many mission trips to other places in the world, to meet missionaries, to encourage them, to support them. And we had planned to send our youth group to Mexico during spring break, but we know the rest of the story, but that's okay. We're still on mission as a church. So as we think about what we've learned here, if we think about an expanded vision, we need to remember that it, it requires additional leadership. So think about those people that you know, you're looking at saying, this person could, could be a good leader. I need to kind of come alongside them. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Be open to new ministries. God is always looking for new ways to reach people with the gospel. But expect opposition, both on the outside and at times on the inside of the church. I've got some questions on your outline that I encourage you to talk about with your family or friends, however you're gathered this morning. Why is it important to be raising up additional leadership in a church like Shafter Mennonite Brethren Church? Not that we don't like our current leaders. I love our church council. But we've got to always be thinking of new leadership to lead new ministries as God leads us. How does the Holy Spirit guide our lives today? Let me give you your first answer to that question. I trust is sitting on your lap or on your tablet. God's Word. The Holy Spirit inspired it. He speaks to our hearts today. Become a student of God's Word and you will be sensitive, more sensitive to the Holy Spirit's guidance. What potential new ministry opportunities do you see being placed before Shafter Mennonite Brethren Church? Are there some you're beginning to wonder, is that the direction we need to go? Let's pray about that. Let's get others to pray and see what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. And where do you see opposition to God's kingdom in our culture and in the world.